Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Good evening. Happy election night three. We are expecting new vote counts within the hour in Nevada, and we are also awaiting new numbers out of Arizona for some of the most important races in the country. With Georgia's Senate race already set for a runoff in December, all the focus is on uncalled Senate races in Arizona and Nevada, ones that will decide whether Democrats keep the Senate. Because the stakes are so high, former President Trump and the entire election-denying wing of the Republican Party, they have become laser-focused on these states, particularly on Maricopa County in Arizona and Clark County in Nevada, where the bulk of the remaining votes are expected. Both Maricopa and Clark have gotten a ton of attention already, but what hasn't gotten much attention is the incredible lengths to which local officials in these counties have gone in order to shut down any claims of election fraud. Right here, these are video feeds of the ballot drop boxes set up by Maricopa County officials. Here's a helpful video showing how Maricopa officials move ballots from one location to the other. You can see that they are escorted by sheriff's deputies. But then if you were still worried that something fishy was going on, you could watch one of these two feeds of the vault where the ballots are stored. There are six different feeds, different angles of the room where the ballots are taken out of their envelopes. The county explained that they have these stations around the room with workers from different political parties sitting across from each other in pairs while working, monitoring one another. You can see how the machines scan ballots. You can watch as people sit at computers verifying the signatures scanned by those machines. There are nine different video feeds for you to watch votes being tabulated. On Saturday, they're even doing a hand count audit to double check the voting machines. Here are the chairs of the Maricopa County Republican, Democratic and Libertarian parties pulling out of a hat which groups of ballots will be selected for that hand count audit. And yet, despite this almost insanely microscopic transparency, conspiracy theorists, big and small, they are doing what they do best. Here was President Trump on his social media website, Truth Social, this afternoon. He said that because Arizona is likely to still be counting at the end of the week, that must mean they want more time to cheat. As for Nevada, Trump said, quote, Clark County, Nevada has a corrupt voting system, as do many places in our soon-to-be third-world country. So, corruption and cheating. Despite how transparent these vote counts are, despite how local election officials have been loud and clear about the fact that they're moving as quickly as their state laws allow them to, Despite the fact that claims of voter fraud and corruption have led to specific physical threats against election leaders in Arizona and Nevada and have forced them to increase the security presence at these counting sites. Despite all of that, Trump and his wing of the GOP seem less focused on the reality of this process and more focused on fanning the flames of doubt. Nevertheless, the count continues. 
And we are expecting more of it to come in any minute now. And there is only one person watching these states closer than the conspiracy theorists who are refreshing those video feeds. And that person's name is Steve Kornacki. Steve, my friend, where do these races stand? Let's start in Arizona. All right. Yes. So Arizona, Nevada. And again, if the Democrats go two for two here, the Georgia runoff won't matter for Senate control. The Democrats will have the majority insured. So you see right now, Mark Kelly, the Democrat in the Senate race in Arizona with a lead here. It's climbed to over 100,000 votes. Uh, he's, there was an update earlier in the evening from Pima County where Tucson is. That's the biggest uh, update we've seen so far that helped Mark Kelly. It's a Democratic county. It's early vote that was reported out. The early Early vote is the best vote. It arrived in the days before the election. So that boosted Mark Kelly's lead. There have been a scattering of reports from some of the very small rural red counties in the state, too, that have helped masters a touch. But the bottom line is around this time yesterday, we were looking at Mark Kelly's lead somewhere in the high 80,000s. Now, 24 hours later, as Pima County and Maricopa County, you know, where Phoenix is in particular, have counted up big batches of these uh, early votes. Kelly's vote has increased. So what we are expecting tonight is from Maricopa County, the biggest in the state. We're expecting another update. They said it's going to be about the size of last night's update. Last night's update was 62,000 votes. So expect something tonight. We think in the 10 to 11 hour Eastern time out of Maricopa County in the neighborhood of 62,000 votes. And again, these are going to be votes that were received Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. The key there, prior to Election Day. Those votes have been favoring Dick Kelly, favoring the Democrats. And basically what Democrats are hoping for here is, again, they get a boost from that 62,000. The Kelly statewide lead climbs, you know, somewhere north of 110, maybe to 115,000, somewhere in that neighborhood. Because basically what they're trying to do is build a bank of votes here that could withstand the final type of vote to be counted, what's still outstanding. In Maricopa County, they tell us it is 290,000. That is the number, 290,000 votes that were delivered in person on Election Day. And in 2020, that was a very Republican group of votes. Uh, In 2018, it was actually a Democratic group of votes. So there's some mystery and suspense about what this vote will look like. But if you're a Democrat, you kind of assume the worst and you say, "Okay, if it's like 2020 again, you want Kelly to have a big as big a lead as possible when they start counting that vote, because if it's Republican, you want to be able to withstand a big Republican batch. The good news for Kelly and the Democrats is that lead of 104,000, which, again, When you get that Maricopa County update sometime tonight, does figure to grow, could withstand a very strong Masters performance with that 290,000 votes. If if Masters won like 60 percent of that, he'd be picking up fewer than netting, fewer than 60,000 votes. And again, he already trails by more than 100,000. So if you're Kelly and the Democrats, I think you're very encouraged by what you've been seeing in these numbers in Arizona, though, if you're a Democrat, you're worried about what you're seeing in the governor's race, because Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, leads there. But her advantage over uh, Carrie Lake is fewer than 20,000 votes. And so Hobbs is in a situation where that same critical batch of 290,000 I'm talking about that they're going to count at the very end. If that's very Republican leaning in her race, 
She may be caught by Carrie Lake. She may end up being caught easily by Carrie Lake if that batch is Republican. So that difference between the Senate race and the governor's race is pretty critical right now. But in terms of control for the Senate, Kelly with a lead of over 100,000. And tonight, Democrats are hoping that will grow. Yeah, Steve, 290,000 votes cast on Election Day. We're forced to engage in the strange behavioral psychology of vote casting. Why would people cast votes that day? What kind of people are they? What's their partisan affiliation? We're not going to know till the Maricopa County officials come and deliver those votes in their tallies. What's happening in Nevada? So, yeah, that's uh, take a look here at the Senate race in Nevada, where Adam Laxalt, the Republicans lead, is just under 16,000 votes. And there's two big population centers in the state and there's two major sources of outstanding vote in the state. Washoe County, where Reno is, there are 40,000 outstanding mail ballots in Washoe County. Uh, There's indications from the officials there that some of these Maybe a fair number of these may end up being spoiled ballots that aren't counted. So I, I look for fewer than 40,000 to actually be counted and, and, and released in the end. But you do have a significant chunk from there. There's also some reason based on some information they've released about the percentage of Republicans, uh, Republican ballots, the percentage of Democratic ballots that make up this mix. There's some reason to think uh, that Laxalt and, and uh, Masto, it may be more of a wash here in terms of how that vote shakes out. So I think for Democrats, what's really critical in Nevada for Cortez Master to make up that difference is what comes out of Clark County. Now, the head of the elections division there in Clark County had a press conference today where he said they have 50,000 votes that they're processing. Yesterday, they they seemed to indicate if, if you took the numbers they released yesterday, it indicated that that number was closer to 70,000. So we're, we're trying to get a handle here on the exact number of outstanding votes in Clark County, because the male votes here in Clark County have been heavily Democratic. It's a Democratic county to begin with. If, if you're looking at 70,000 ballots to come, something in that neighborhood, uh, male ballots from Clark County, that's you can easily see Cortez Masto passing Laxalt if she's you know if she's running at you know high 50, 60 percent something like that. If it's down closer to fifty thousand, the math gets a little bit more difficult for her. So we're trying to nail down exactly how many are left there. But we are expecting sometime this hour uh, to get an update from Clark County. And in fact, I'm just checking to see if it came in while I've been talking. I, it, it has not yet come in, but we're expecting an update from Clark County tonight. And I'm going to be curious not just to see how much Cortez Masto was able to cut into that Laxalt lead, but just how big that update is in terms of how many votes it has, because I think that could shed some light on what is still to come from Clark County. Yeah, well, we will definitely be going back to you once those numbers are coming in, and maybe even before that. Steve Kornacki, thanks as always, my friend. Thank you. Joining us now is John Favreau, former speechwriter for President Obama. He co-hosts the podcast Pod Save America and is also the host of The Wilderness, which is a wonderful podcast about the history and the future of the Democratic Party. John, thank you for being here this evening as we try and parse exactly what's going on. I want to draw your attention to a statistic that I was not made aware of, was not aware of until this very moment, which is if Catherine Cortez Masto and Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock all win their races, it will be the first time in American history that every incumbent senator from a party wins re-election, which is really staggering when you think about the fact that going into this, there was one narrative. And there was also the reality that Biden is sitting at a 40 percent, 41 percent approval rating. 
What do you think accounts for this this notion that incumbents representing the party are getting reelected en masse across America with an executive who does not have pretty high favorables? I mean, I think Republicans uh, are nominated lunatic candidates. <laughs> there was a price to pay for right-wing extremism in this election. And the reason that we saw the results we did is because Donald Trump went around and tried to push a whole bunch of candidates that were as extreme as possible. And he also stacked the Supreme Court with a bunch of right-wing justices who then overturned Roe v. Wade and fueled the biggest, one of the biggest backlashes in American politics. And because of that extremism, uh, you know, the big question in this election was, will the 2018 anti-Trump coalition turnout uh, in the, tw- the, the turned out in the 2018 midterms? We saw record turnout in that midterm. And the big question was, would that coalition still turn out in 2022, even though Democrats held the White House in Congress, even though the inflation is high, even though people are upset about the economy. And it turned out that because Republicans nominated such extreme candidates, and especially in the Senate races, um, that coalition turned out. And the second thing that happened is independent voters, and especially independent women, um, broke against Republicans and went for the party that's in power, which almost never happens in a midterm election. I I also think there was a space carved out because the Trump cloud of existential dread loomed so large. There was a space carved out for certain Democratic candidates to talk about the issues that really mattered to voters, whether it was reproductive freedom, whether it was the economy writ large, you know, whether it was health care. We have a candidate who is still running. His name is Raphael Warnock. He's headed for a runoff in Georgia. And Warnock's strategy in this next month is to talk about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, specifically the the cap on the price of insulin for Medicare, his bipartisan Mm -hmm. work across the aisle, his push to extend health health insurance, and to some degree highlighting uh, Herschel Walker's lack of qualifications. Does that, is it effectively this one-two punch that that Democrats don't have to necessarily talk about Trump because voters are so familiar, and then that then leaves them space to talk about the issues that voters actually care about? Or do you think that the Trump cloud is truly the motivating factor here? No, I think that, look, there is this sort of very online debate about, you know, is uh, was abortion and democracy more important? Were kitchen table issues and inflation and economy more important? The Democrats that ran in this election, and you saw it in their ads, you saw it in their speeches, you saw it in what they tried to make news about, they talked about everything. They talked about the issues that were of most concern to people in their everyday lives, whether that was hoping that abortion access would remain legal in a state, whether it was hoping that we didn't elect someone in a state who might overturn the next election, whether it was uh, voting for someone who fought really hard to make sure prescription drug prices went down or that we invested in climate change and lower energy prices. Like the problem that the Republicans had is not only were they extreme, they thought they were just going to like coast into power based on people being upset with the economy. 
But they had no plan. They offered no plan for inflation, no plan for the economy. Um, and they thought that they could just run as generic Republicans. And then if people were upset about the economy, that would sweep them into power. Meanwhile, Democrats were ta- out there talking about how they fought against prescription drug companies, how they fought against the oil companies, how they fought for working people. And by the way, they were also going to fight to protect people's freedoms, whether it was freedom to decide when to have a family or the freedom to vote in an election and expect that your vote's going to be counted. Uh, John, hold on for one second. In the last few minutes, seconds, we've gotten those numbers out of Clark County, Nevada, that we promised you at the top of the hour. We're going to go right over to Steve Kornacki at the big board. Steve, what are those numbers saying? Yeah, so we did just get a batch from Clark County, Nevada. Now, this is it, it looks like votes that election officials yesterday um, had indicated would be released today. So it's, we were talking about, you know, potentially 50, 70,000. It's a little over 12,000 they just released. And Cortez Masto got 7,480 of them. And Laxalt got 4,195. So again, it continues that mail vote in Clark County has been strongly Democratic. That's basically a 64, a 61-34 split there, 61%, 34% that Cortez Masto gets from this new batch of votes. And so, as you can see what that does statewide, that shaves 3,200 votes, almost 3,300 votes off Laxalt's lead. It falls down to 12,671. So again, you know, yesterday officials had talked about having about 27,000 ballots. It gets very confusing, but they had talked about having 27,000 ballots yesterday. 14,000 were released last night. It looks like this is the rest of that 27,000 that they were talking about yesterday. And then there's this, that would leave then this 50, this, this batch of about 56,000 votes, Clark County. This is similar to what we're talking about uh, in Maricopa County. 56,000 votes that they say were retrieved from drop boxes on Election Day. And so it, it's that big question we were kind of talking about in Maricopa County. How do you interpret those votes, or, or that, that type of vote? Is the voter who drops off the, the ballot in the box on Election Day more Democratic, more Republican, somewhere in the middle? What's the partisan composition of that going to be? Uh, but again, the election, the head of elections there in Clark County today was talking about having slightly more than 50,000 votes. I, I, I'm surmising here that what we just got was the balance of, of, of a type of vote he was describing yesterday and that what remains is heavily that uh, drop box vote that they retrieved on election day. And so it's a questionnaire of what that's going to look like. Uh, but obviously, if it's very Democratic, there's room there for Cortez Masto to cut much further into that advantage that Laxalt has. And as I said, there's still vote from Washoe County as well. It's somewhere less than 40,000 votes to be counted from Washoe County. But basically, we just had a batch of more than 12,000 votes from Clark County, largest county in the state. Cortez Masto wins them by a little bit less than a two to one margin. And what that does is it shaves Laxalt's lead down to 12,671 statewide. Okay, Steve, just to, sorry to be dense here, but 56,000 and the the lion's share of that is from drop boxes, we think. They, so yeah, they, and I apologize for all the confusion here because this is, it's, it's just it's a very complicated process. But what election officials said yesterday was that they had gotten 56,000 votes. They said yesterday afternoon they announced that they, they found 56,000 votes they got from drop boxes on election day. 
That okay. was one thing that they announced yesterday. Which is different than Dropbox. That's not people dropping off ballots at polling centers. It's the Dropboxes right. that have been largely vilified by the right and election conspiracists as somehow a fraudulent mechanism of vote delivery. What they had talked about yesterday at their press conference, they do these two daily briefings. What they had talked about yesterday was a pool of about 27,000 votes that were, it was mail that was received on election day, and it was... Dropbox ballots that were retrieved on the day before the election. Okay, so they talked about that yesterday and they also talked about receiving some mail uh, on Wednesday, the day after the election, because the mail can continue coming in for a few days after the election. So we saw a release of 14, about 14,000 votes last night. We just got a release of 12,000 votes and change. So I'm just doing the math in my head and I'm, I'm thinking it's probably that 27,000 they were talking about yesterday. And then after that press conference yesterday, they announced that there were about 56,000 votes retrieved from the drop boxes on election day specifically. So if you're through with that 27,000, that would become the lion's share, presumably, of what's left, the, the ballots that were taken from drop boxes on election day. The folks who waited till election day brought the ballot to the Dropbox, put it in. Would that be Democratic? Would that be Republican? That could be determinative for the election. Indeed, it will be. Um, a lot of analysis to come. Steve, thank you as always. And let us know if you get any more votes. Will do. I want to go back to our friend John Favreau. John, uh, so it's obviously we don't have any final results on uh, control of the House or Senate here. Uh, and we're going to be eagerly awaiting these results as they as they trickle in. But if you look at what could be happening in the House, right, which was always going to be a very uphill climb for Democrats, the reality is, you know, Trump endorsed candidates had a bad night. But there were plenty of people who are entering this new class in Congress that are um, unsavory actors as it concerns democracy and the institutions that preserve democracy, right? I mean, the reality is yeah. Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are not going to be in Congress anymore. Um, and... He, J.D. Vance is. Uh, you have plenty of folks who are radical sort of right wingers that are going to be entering this class. And you could have a House that is governed by a two or three seat majority uh, by. And I it's hard to say the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. What do you think the implications are for Democrats in a landscape like that and specifically the Biden administration? How best to gird themselves for the coming two years of inquisitions? I mean, I think that if you have a Speaker McCarthy and if you have a Speaker McCarthy running what is a very right wing caucus that uh, and he only has, you know, a few votes to spare. So they're going to sort of wring all kinds of concessions out of him. It's basically going to be Marjorie Taylor Greene running the House. Um, I think the Biden administration and Democrats in general will continue what they just did in this campaign, which is running against the right wing extremism that's coming out of the House and whether it's the House trying to take the economy hostage uh, by trying to, you know, cut Medicare and Social Security to lift the debt ceiling, whether it's them trying to uh, shut down the government, whatever they're trying to do, uh, investigations, impeachment. I think that the Biden administration, what their message is going to be is like, look, 
we are trying to work pretty hard to bring down costs for families. We know that people are upset with the economy. We know that we want to try to bring down costs. We're willing to work with the Republicans on this. They're spending all day doing investigations, worried about Hunter's laptop, trying to shut down the government. And it's going. And, and as a result, the Republicans are going to look as extreme as they did on election night, and it's not going to go well for them. Do you think that there's been any lesson learning in terms? I mean, there's this talk of the Republicans ready to turn uh, tr- cast Trump aside because he's delivering losses. But the fact of the matter is they're not saying we disavow Trump because of the values that he promoted. He's just not winning us stuff anymore. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, they didn't they didn't disavow Trump uh, after he led an insurrection to the Capitol. But they're going <laughs> to they're going to disavow him when they can't win their races. Uh, either way, like I do think there is a possibility that they might learn lessons again, not because they have like seen the light, but because they're worried they're not going to win. And if you, look, if you look across the map on Tuesday night, the non-MAGA Republicans in big races ran pretty far ahead of the MAGA candidates, right? Chris Sununu in New Hampshire did a lot better than Don Boldick. Mike DeWine in Ohio did a lot better than J.D. Vance. So at some point, these Republicans are going to think, okay, in a competitive race, do we want to nominate a candidate that is not an election denier, that it's not an extremist, uh, because otherwise we're going to lose. So they, they may learn a lesson just because their political survival depends on it. But, you know, too soon to tell. It's all about political survival. John Favreau, former Obama speechwriter, host of the podcast Wilderness. Thank you for setting aside some time for us tonight, my friend. Thanks for having me. Okay, we have much more ahead here tonight. And up next, perhaps the biggest loser in this election. Yes, Donald Trump. One of his chief investigators, Congressman Jamie Raskin, joins us live right here, coming up next. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Donald Trump still makes a speech next week that he wants to run for president. But would you think about that? I could not support him. I I just couldn't. Republicans on the same ticket who he did not endorse overperformed, whereas his candidates totally underperformed by as much as 10 points. We have a clear mission and it is time to move on. It is time to move on. That was Virginia's Republican Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, essentially saying that she is done with Donald Trump after this week's midterm elections. And Winsome Sears is not the kind of Republican you would expect to throw Donald Trump under the bus. In 2020, she was the chair of the pro-Trump super PAC Black Americans to reelect the president. But she is not the only one. Here's a headline from the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal. 
Trump is the Republican Party's biggest loser. Quote, Mr. Trump has botched the 2020 elections and it could hand Democrats the Senate for two more years. We're going to win so much, Mr. Trump once said, that you're going to get sick of and tired of winning. Maybe by now Republicans are sick and tired of losing. Let us be clear about the conservative rationale that is on display here. Republicans are saying they want to get rid of Trump, not because, for example, he called a mob to the Capitol to try and undermine democracy. They are saying instead that they want to get rid of Trump because he's losing them races. They can abide all of the anti-democratic authoritarianism that Trump has injected into the GOP, but not if it costs them seats in the House and Senate. And while Democrats did better than anyone expected in this election, Trumpist Republicans will still grow their ranks in the GOP. In the next Congress, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger will be gone. But Ron Johnson and Marjorie Taylor Greene will still be there, and they will have new allies like J.D. Vance to back them up. So what exactly does that mean for democracy? Joining me now is Maryland Congressman and member of the January 6th committee, Jamie Raskin. It is so great to have you here. And I should note that you are here because you just received the Attorney of the Year Award from the American Lawyer magazine. So congratulations, Congressman. Thanks for having me over. Don't be bashful. It's a good big deal. Well, I've tried um, one major case in my life, and that was the Donald Trump impeachment. Well, and it ended up with a 57 to 43 vote, which sounds like a victory, but we didn't get to two thirds. Well, so he wasn't convicted. I, I think that that is one of those cases that will go down in history. And for that, you seem very deserving of the award. But I want to get your sense of what's happening right now and, and how you are feeling about the results as we have them thus far. I feel great about the results. Do you feel like democracy is in better hands? I feel encouraged. I feel emboldened. Um, you know, people were running around saying that America was going to fall for this wall of, you know, dark money propaganda about crime and inflation, which was an absolute distraction from the fact that Joe Biden has presided over a huge economic comeback mm-hmm. for America. And the fact that they um, endangered our democracy to the point of um, encouraging a violent insurrection against the government and trying to stage a coup against our constitutional order. And the American people showed that even in uh, a midterm election, when the pendulum tends to swing to the out party, even under those conditions, the people are going to stand for democracy, for freedom and the idea of social progress. So uh, the Democrats are hanging tough and uh, that's all over the country. I'm so proud of my colleagues across America uh, who have fought so hard under very difficult conditions. I mean, uh, McCarthy went out and raised hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in corporate dark money to lie about what's taking place in the country. And the people rejected it. And our candidates, um, some of whom won, like Abigail Spamberger, some of whom lost, like Tom Malinowski, some who are still on the line tonight. Elaine Loria. Uh, uh, yeah, and Elaine didn't win, but I'm so proud of everyone mm-hmm. for hanging tough for America. And look, when we were growing up, we had two major parties that were pro-democracy. Today, we've got one democracy party. Well, and I wonder sort of what the implications of that are for the work that you're doing, for example, on the January 6th committee. Are you guys preparing for a potential Republican takeover? It doesn't seem likely that Kevin McCarthy will be a big fan of continuing the important work you've been doing on behalf of American democracy. Well, first of all, because we believe in transparency and accountability, we're going to get all of the critical information out to America. We're going to preserve all of our records so nothing gets destroyed. Um, 
And uh, we're going to issue a final report, which uh, recounts the former president's systematic assault on the constitutional order and attempt to seize the presidency. But it's also going to look at what were the structural conditions that allowed him to do that. The attack on uh, elections, the domestic violent extremist groups, the fact that um, the extremist groups were running wild on social media mm-hmm. and using it for logistical coordination of their plans for the assault on the Capitol. Um, and some of the other, you know, ingredients that took place. So it's going to be more in depth and more detailed about everything that we found. And it will conclude with a set of legislative recommendations about how to prevent coups, insurrections, political violence and electoral sabotage in this century. That seems like an important set of conclusions for everybody to get a hold of. I, you know, it's not lost on anyone that Donald Trump is supposed to testify to the committee uh, next Monday. Is it your expectation that he will testify? Do you intend to hold him in contempt of Congress if he doesn't? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get to those hypotheticals. I mean, one would think that a guy who, you know, brags on the social media, who brags at his rallies about uh, everything that happened, he's already floating mass pardons for people who were convicted of seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to interfere with the federal proceeding, would come forward as a former president of the United States of America to testify about why he feels that way. And we have had more than a thousand people come forward. It's just a handful of people directly around him who think that somehow they're above the law. But as we saw in the Steve Bannon case, they're not. Uh, When anybody is subpoenaed to come and testify before Congress or a court, they have a legal obligation to do it. And if not, they're acting in contempt of Congress or the court. That sort of sounds like maybe he'll be charged with contempt of Congress. I mean, do, do you, Trump is also dangling out as recently as a few hours ago this idea that he's going to announce his candidacy for the presidency on Tuesday. Does that affect the work that you do? I mean, how much is that in your sort of front? Well, your, how much are you thinking about that? How much is the committee considering that? Well, I mean, as a legal proposition, it's, of course, perfectly irrelevant in terms of crimes committed. If you commit a crime, mm-hmm. whether it's you know, incitement to insurrection or interference with a federal proceeding or seditious conspiracy or murder or theft or whatever it might be, the fact that you're going to run for another office doesn't somehow immunize you from a prosecution. And people should understand that. So don't think that you can just go out, commit a crime, rob a bank, and then declare that you're running for city council and you're going to be okay. Right. It doesn't work like that. So I think it's irrelevant from a legal and juridical perspective. Um, From a political perspective, obviously, we're concerned because we think that our constitutional democracy is under attack by these people. And, you know, the political scientists tell us that the features of an authoritarian political party are they don't accept the results of democratic elections when they don't go their way. They embrace political violence and they operate as a cult of authoritarian personality. So when we were in the impeachment trial, I told all the Republican senators I could talk to, you've got to do this for the country. Mm -hmm. You've got to do this for the Constitution, but you've got to do it for your political party, too, because he will destroy your political party. And I think they're beginning to see a little bit of that in terms of the referendum that was effectively on Trumpism that happened on, on Tuesday. As, as the public has been focused on the midterms, the committee has not stopped working. And in particular, you guys have been interviewing members of the Secret Service about what happened on January 6th. And we know from public reporting that you interviewed the driver of the president's SUV on January 6th. Um, does anything that you've heard in that um, 
in, in that testimony conflict with what we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson in her test in her account of the events? Well, I don't want to talk about the details of specific people's testimony, but I will tell you that nothing I've seen anywhere in this process contradicts Cassidy Hutchinson's account in any way that undermines my confidence um, in her testimony uh, and the accuracy of what she was reporting. And I mean, Vice President Pence, in his um, op-ed that was published today, yes. um, basically recounts the episode of being taken down by the Secret Service into an undisclosed location in a parking garage and repeating, I'm not getting in that car. I mean, stating that that's what he said, which to me are six of the most chilling words of the, certainly this episode, if not all of American history, like he knew that if he was taken away, there was going to be an effort to stage a coup and to continue with the Trump's effort to just steal the election on the floor. And he said he's not getting in the car until the Electoral College votes were counted. So to my mind, uh, a vice president who showed uh, for most points of Trump's presidency, nothing other than invertebrate sycophancy on that day earned his salary and demonstrated himself to be a constitutional patriot on that day. And in that op-ed that's an excerpt from his book, he effectively corroborates that there was a pressure campaign on him to not certify the electors from states. That was the whole thing. Trump was trying to get him to step outside of his constitutional role and just obliterate and vaporize electoral college votes from Arizona, Georgia and Pennsylvania, just disappear the votes of tens of millions of people. Jamie Raskin, Maryland Congressman, member of the January 6th Committee, Lawyer of the Year. Can I just say Lawyer, lawyer of the Year by my book? Thank you for being here, Congressman. For the night. For, for the, the night. night. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. Up next, we are going to try and get some more information on all that all-important Nevada Senate race, how many votes are left, and is there a path for Senator Catherine Cortez Masto to hold on to her seat? The dean of the Nevada Press Corps, John Ralston, joins us next. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. We have a race call to announce at this hour. NBC News projects that Democrat Aaron Ford has won the attorney general race in Nevada. Also moments ago, we got a new batch of ballots in Clark County, Nevada. The Nevada race for U.S. Senate has tightened slightly. Republican Adam Laxalt leads by less than 2%. We still do not know which party will gain power in the upper chamber. So for more, we are joined now by John Ralston, CEO of the Nevada Independent. John, thanks for being here tonight. Um, how are you reading this latest tranche of, of information, <laughs> both ballots and results that we're seeing in Nevada? How does the does the AG's result at all change your ideas about what may be happening in the Senate race? 
Well, no, because Alex, uh, uh, Aaron Ford was going to win that race almost as soon as we saw the first results from election night. He had a very weak opponent and he did a great job of exposing her uh, for who she is. The Senate race is, is a completely different animal. And so let's talk about what just happened, Alex. There were about 12,300 uh, votes re released in Clark County. And uh, Catherine Cortez Masto got about 62% in that. Adam Laxalt got about 34%. That is slightly below what margin she got last night in Clark County. But it is still enough if these margins were to hold at above 60% for her to catch up to him. Now, there is one slight mystery out there, Alex, and that is exactly how many ballots are left. We think that there are somewhere between 80 and 100,000 uh, ballots, but we're not sure how many. And it's how those ballots break could be the key to this race. One other thing to complicate everything further is mail can still come in until Saturday, as long as it was postmarked on election day or before. And those mail ballots, some of them are being taken out because there are problems. They can be cured. That's the term of art up until a couple days later. So we may not know for sure who won this race until next week, Alex. Oh, John yeah. Alston. <laughs> Painful. Uh, you know, you tweeted, I think, two days ago about how close Nevada Senate races have been historically. I mean, we're talking about races that have Everyone from Harry Reid on has had races that were, uh, you know, that that hung on a handful of ballots, 40, 200, 300, not large numbers. Do you think this race is shaping up to be something that hangs on such a sharp, tight razor's edge? You know, it's really possible. It's a great question. And, and as you said, we have had some really close Senate races here. I covered the Harry Reid race against John Ensign in 1998 that was just decided by 400 votes after uh, a recount. We could get into that territory. It's still a little bit hard to tell, Alex. Well, we'll know in a, in a couple more days uh, just how close this is. But I would not be surprised if it ends up being that close. And, you know, it's a much different world now than any of those other races that you mentioned with all these mail ballots uh, out there. And we're just not sure how many uh, uh, Clark County ballots are left. We think it's at least 50,000 plus, uh, which is a lot of ballots. But uh, Catherine Cortez Masto also has to maintain that 60 percent edge in every dump. And Washoe County uh, has a, a tens of thousands of ballots left, maybe as many as 40, and she's got to win those by a pretty sizable margin, too. So we'll know a lot more. There's going to be Washoe County results released later tonight, Alex, and that'll tell us something. We are becoming experts in these various uh, ballot detailed data dumps uh, and the behaviors of voters as they vote on Election Day at drop boxes at their precincts. It's a whole new form of election psychology. John Ralston, CEO of the Nevada Independence. Always great to talk to you, John. Thanks for your time tonight. Up next, we have a look at how Pennsylvania Senator-elect John Fetterman beat the odds to flip that seat in the Keystone State from red to blue. One of the lead strategists from that winning campaign joins us live to talk about what went down, how they did it. On set next. Right now, all eyes are on the Senate races in Arizona and Nevada and the possibility that Democrats might just hold on to the upper chamber, depending on the outcomes there. One of the main reasons that Democrats are even in this position to begin with 
is because of John Fetterman's win in Pennsylvania on Tuesday night, a win that flipped a Senate seat that Republicans have held on to for more than a decade. Fetterman beat the odds in a very tight race against celebrity doctor Mehmet Oz, who poured millions of his own money into his campaign and was backed by Donald Trump. And Fetterman managed to do all of that while recovering from a stroke he suffered seven months before Election Day. But Fetterman's campaign was as unique as his circumstances. And beyond the messaging and the memes, there was Fetterman himself, who addressed his own challenges as a central part of that campaign. He talked about his struggles with speech and his auditory processing delays that resulted from the stroke. And he talked about those things as he made a promise that he would fight for anyone who, quote, got knocked down and had to get back up. Joining us now is Rebecca Katz, senior advisor to Pennsylvania's newest senator, John Fetterman. She is also a Democratic strategist. Rebecca, thanks for joining me tonight. I, me. I know you like to hear Senator Fetterman yeah, come it's, out it's of everyone. It's still new. I love it. Yeah. So just talk to me about how you guys grappled with this health event that soon-to-be Sen- senator-elect Fetterman had. And I guess I would just focus on the decision to put him on the debate stage, because in a lot of people's minds, that was a controversial move. But it's, it's not one that cost him by the election, by the election by any stretch. Right. I mean, let's let's think about what got us here. It was John Fetterman. It was being himself, being authentic. We ran a, can, a campaign that really played to those strengths. He's from Pennsylvania. He's for Pennsylvania. He gets regular people. So when we had when we had the discussion about the debate, it was about showing people what he's going through. You know, when he was having a, st- when he had a stroke and had to recover, he had to rec- recover in public. Yeah, that is not an easy thing to do. And so we started talking about that more. You know, and and he would say at rallies, "Has um, anyone had a stroke?" You know, and everyone would raise their hand. Or a lot of people yes. know people who have had and, strokes. And and people understood that he was going through something and he was going to get better. And there's a humanity there that I think a lot of the coverage completely missed, yeah. frankly. You and know? the authenticity and the 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 sort of solidity of Fetterman through yes. all of it. Did he ever doubt that he should be going public with this? I just wonder how convinced it, he was. I mean, it's so vulnerable to be out there healing from something like this and running a high-stakes Senate campaign. I would say it was not fun to be, you know, like it was it was a very hard t- thing to, to recover that way. But um, he he knew he was getting better. And so we went out there and, and he gave it his, his best shot. And as you said, he, he said, when you get knocked down, you got to get back up. And that's what he did. Did you ever worry as a campaign? I mean, there was a moment where it seemed like it was not going to be a big deal in the summer when the memes about crudités were dominating the conversation. But then they unloaded a hundred million dollars in attack ads. Their theory of the case was not to build Oz up, but to tear John down. Right. And Pennsylvanians saw through that. They saw that he was that John was one of them. And and Oz was from New Jersey. You know, so you can laugh <laughs> like we could talk about, you know, all summer about the the um, the the Jersey Shore and all the things that we did. But at the end of the day, people knew that Oz was from New Jersey and John was from Pennsylvania. Yes. And when they voted, that was a number one issue. Oz isn't from here. He is a hundred percent Fetterman. It's not just the authenticity, though. Too, I think his election was heartening for people across the country because it was an exercise in empathy for a lot of people. The idea that you would you would kind of forgive someone for not being op- operative at a hundred percent, but you knew they could get better and you believed in them. But people also, John is very smart. He's very funny. He he um, he connected with folks, yeah. and, and that comes across. I just have one more question. Is Uh-oh. he going to wear 
a suit and tie? Does he have to John wear one? John has a suit. Let's be very clear about that. He has a suit. He wore it when he presided over the Senate, and he will wear more of them. He'll more buy more of suits. The suit? He'll buy more suits. I'm just putting it out there. Does yes. that mean with shorts? I mean, he will wear shorts as much as he can, but when he has to wear a suit, he will wear a suit. This is like the most controversial yes, know, thing he's going to grapple with in the coming months. Democratic strategist <laughs> Rebecca Katz, advisor to the Fetterman campaign. Congratulations and so a much. very hard-fought hard battle. Thank you for joining us tonight. That does it for us. We will see you again tomorrow.